Hello, and welcome to the DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today we're responding to a reader letter from Elise who asked about kids and pets in romance and how often they become matchmaking plot devices. We also talk about what we're currently reading, including a pretty intricate discussion of Lisa Kleypas' upcoming novel, Crystal Cove. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I'll have information at the end of the podcast about where you can find this artist and this song and get it for your very, very own. And now, on with the podcast. This letter is from Elise, who says, I just listened to your most recent podcast and had to email with an idea. This is the third email I've sent you, which is akin to stalking for me. Your website and podcast are so great I can't resist. I think you should do a discussion of plot moppets and pets. Is there a name for dog plot moppets? I just finished finished Misty and the Single Dad by Marion Lennox, and it had major plot moppet going on. The hero in Misty teaches the hero's six-year-old son, Bailey. Bailey is super adorable and totally okay with Misty and his dad being together, even though his mother only died a year ago and Bailey was injured when she was killed. One, I've known some six-year-olds, and while they can be sweet and precocious, they can also behave like feral badgers. I have yet to read a book wherein the child has a full-on boneless meltdown in Target. Two, I have never heard of Blended Family where the little kid was okay with mom or dad finding a new partner, usually very much the opposite. In romance novels, though, kids are often savvy matchmakers, not yelling, you are not my mommy. Lennox's books also feature dogs that bring the hero and heroine together. I've read lots of contemporary romances that feature troublemaking dogs, sad shelter mutts, or shared doggy custody as a plot device. Is there a name for this? Why is it never cats or or parakeets? I think of it as the Sarah McLaughlin effect from those heartbreaking ASPCA commercials. So these are my ideas. Thank you for all the great book ideas and discussion, Elise. I remember the Marion Lennox series because I read one and thought it was awesome and then went back to read all of them. And it was like gorging on really, really sweet candy. I could do one, but specifically Misty and the Single Dad, I had to give up because of the kid being so completely unrealistic. And what I felt was a really unrealistic and, I thought, cruel way to handle Bailey's backstory. Because when you have a character who has such a painful history, I mean, physically and emotionally painful, because he gets really badly hurt when his mom is, when his mom dies. When you have a character with that much painful backstory and the character who for any other any other situation would be resistant and angry is totally, totally supportive of something that would in a logical world make no sense. It makes me. Oh, it just makes me angry because that's just not real. I just cannot believe that a child who goes through that would be like, heck yeah, new mom. Who's a teacher that I just met? That's awesome. Yay. No, 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 no. Handling a backstory that painfully bothers me. And and it also bothers me for another reason that has nothing to do with plot moppets, but moppets, but I'll talk about it anyway. When you have something that is a painful backstory of a character that the reader is not aware of, and part of the tension of the story is building up to the reveal of that painful thing in the past, 
when the reader finally learns about it, even if the reader has probably guessed what it was, that's when the reader is experiencing those emotions coming from that event. So if you're empathizing with the character and the character has some horrible emotional traumatic secret and then you find out like in the last few pages what the full scope of the traumatic secret is, it's not backstory for the reader. It's happening right then in their in, – okay – for me it's happening for me right then and i have like three pages to get over it before the end of the book can you tell this is something that has pissed me off in the past so if you have a character like bailey whose mom is is dead from a terrible accident and he's clearly suffering physically and emotionally from that for there to be a okay he's now getting over it you should too right after discovering what it was doesn't work for me because i still have to process through all of the same things that that character would have to process in a much smaller time space. I don't think there is a name for dog plot mopping, but that particular use of children is something that makes me want to avoid books where the characters have kids, which is kind of horrible because I have kids and I like my kids. Um, they're not matchmakers and mine are seven and five. They absolutely do act like feral badgers sometimes, especially when they're tired and it's bedtime. But I don't particularly enjoy books with kids in them because all too often they're plot devices and not real people. And their issues need to be solved much faster than I think is realistic. And more, more, most of the time I finish a book with a, with a, with a plot mop at kid and think, oh, therapy in your future. Every now and again, you'll see a book with the brother relationship, like um, Ellen Hartman's book, uh, The Long Shot. I think the hero had custody of his younger brother or tried to get custody of his younger brother. And they have a sort of paternal relationship, a, a father-son sort of relationship, even though they're brothers. I would totally read the son's story. In fact, I have to go buy it because I forgot. But that was mitigated by the fact that they were brothers and the older brother was not his actual parent. I'm totally cool with, you know, Party of Five style romance collections. But when it's an actual child, I... I don't really enjoy them, particularly because they become plot devices. What about you? I think that it's, you know, we look at our reaction to books based, is based upon our own personal experiences. When you emailed me that uh, reader um, response, I emailed you back and said, well, my kid has never had a meltdown in a store. So everybody's experiences are different. And... Uh, I think that you can't make general generalizations about what one child, how one child responds to um, the loss of a parent, the inclusion of a new parent, and and that sort of thing. I think what happens is that you're right. All too often, children are used to move the plot along or to provide conflict when it's necessary and aren't really well integrated into the story so that those portrayals of the children seem a little more fake than um, even if there are kids who would have those type of responses. So not every kid just, you know, has the same response and some might want to have uh, a parent more than anything and others might be resistant to bringing a parent into the uh, a new parent into the household um, I thought the unexpected family by Molly O'Keefe did a good job of showing um, it's a grief story the three boys lose their 
parents and then their rodeo uh, uncle has to come in and take care of them and he's not very well equipped to do it he doesn't he hadn't had any children before and uh, he's struggling with the loss of his rodeo career and the family all ends up going to therapy together because they need to uh, work through just the grieving process of losing their parents and there's a great scene where the therapist says to the hero have you grieved yet and he said of course I have and uh, she said no I mean the loss of your rodeo career and so I thought that that book uh, integrated children fairly well um, the they the kids varied in their responses. Some were angry and some were really sad and some were just happy that he was there and scared that he was going to leave. But um, I tend to agree with you that most of the time when kids are included in the story, they're underdeveloped and because of that um, are more like props than actual characters. when you, when I was thinking about this and the types of books that I had liked that had kids, um, I think the kids were uh, a lot more vibrant. Um, another book I recall is Lord Perfect had two kids, uh, um, Peregrine and I think Olivia were the two kids' names, and they were very instrumental in the romance uh, Chase actually writes their story. I think she published it a couple years ago. And I was so impressed because in their story, the two had the same spirit that she had portrayed in the previous book in Lord Perfect. And I thought that was a really remarkable grasp on those characters. And again, I felt like in Lord Perfect, those characters, while they acted maybe outside the norm, it fit the story that Chase was telling. And then later on when she wrote their uh, story, their romance as adults, she managed to keep them the same, making them even more, I think, of a realistic and authentic uh, individuals rather than just uh, plot devices. The book was so well done because not only did she keep their personalities very similar, but you could see the characters from the earlier book would logically have grown up into those people. And it was very satisfying to get their to get their uh, their story. I generally am a little reluctant to read the romances of children from prior books. Like I know that Stephanie Lawrence is now on the romance for I think Henrietta Sinster, and I think in Devil's Bride Henrietta is three or two or maybe not even born yet. And it's a it's a big leap I think to see a child transition from a child to a adult, particularly a potentially sexually active adult. And the longer I read about a child in a romance, the harder it is for me to um, adapt to them as a heroine. And that was one of the problems I've had with the later Sinsters. I was not particularly able to transition from seeing them from children in earlier books to uh, sexually autonomous heroines in later books, which is totally my shortcoming. And I fully acknowledge that. That is something that I struggle with. One thing that I wish I saw more of in terms of the portrayal of families and and kids is that 
I really enjoy it when there's a portrayal of a parent who isn't a perfect parent and and screws up and owns it. I really appreciate that because I screw up parenting all the time. I remember this Ellen Hartman book because in the book, the heroine, who is, I believe, a single mom going through a divorce, has a water gun fight with her kids outside and the neighboring parents are like, oh, my God, what's wrong with you? You're you're ridiculous. The other parents are looking down their noses at her, yet even though she's being excluded from things like the, the social circle of the of the community, she's still aware that she's trying to be the best parent she can be, even though sometimes she'll screw up. What about pets? Have you noticed or do you like books with pets in them? Is that something that appeals to you? I actually kind of laugh because um, a, a dog in particular is a lot of work, particularly a puppy. It's like having an infant. And I always laugh or and somewhat cringe when uh, a character gives another character a pet, like just out of the blue. I think you need this dog or something. And um, the uh, end of the, a friendship right there. <laughs> the recipient is always like, oh, you're so right. I never realized how much I needed a dog. But there's so much work. And, ex- and um, I just find it kind of... Uh, it's just a really unrealistic depiction of of uh, of dogs in in stories. Um, you know, I have a kind of a love hate relationship with my dog, and uh, I never view dogs in stories as um, particularly appealing. But I know from speaking with authors and editors, uh, people love books with pets, and. Um, if you put a dog or a cat on the cover, uh, that book is going to sell. And so I think I'm just kind of an anomaly in regards uh, to animals and books. I could really live without them. <laughs> the um, Jennifer Cruzy re-release of um, the hotel book, the one that was set in the hotel, which of course I can't remember the name. And she had to write a dog into the book because the new cover had a dog on it. And even though there was no dog in the original book, the buyer, I want to say it was for Barnes and Noble, maybe said, if you put a dog on the cover, I'll order, you know, X number more. So, well, yeah, they put a dog on the cover and but there was no dog in the book. So she went back and wrote in a dog. Trust me on this. It has a Yorkie on the cover sitting in a suitcase. And the original trust me on this. Apparently there was no dog. I've noticed a lot more dogs on covers. I know that Kristen Higgins usually has pets in her in her stories like the the care and walking and taking care of and being home for a dog is part of the characters in her book and i generally appreciate that because having a dog is very different from having a cat you can't just go up and leave and go on vacation and you know leave some food and water out you actually have to be home to let them out and walk them and be around and so usually her characters the dog is sort of a a point at which the characters will orbit. They will come back home to take care of the dog. They have to bring the dog to a friend's house. The dog is a part of their lives that's important and treated like something important. I never buy it when dogs matchmake. My dogs could care less who I am with as long as they're getting fed. I've noticed with, with the new covers for Kristen Higgins's books, the dogs are more and more prominent. And I remember, I think you might have forwarded it to me or shown it to me. There was a, a, a call for dogs from Har- Harlequin. Like they were looking for a specific kind of dog to be the model on her new book. And they were looking for a very specific breed and a very specific color to do the dog positioning or the, the dog pose on the cover. That that takes a lot of wrangling. That's, you know, that's more than stock imagery. 
The other thing I love is when pets are badly photoshopped onto the cover of a book. There are some that are so bad. that are so badly inserted. I... I'm I'm like you. I'm not terribly drawn to a book. Like if it has a dog on the cover, there's not a chance that I'm going to buy it even more. I I've noticed myself despite being so interested in what they look like, caring less and less about the book cover because I so seldom see it if I read it digitally. I'll see it when I buy it and I see it when it's on the shelf, but I am paying more more attention to the synopsis and the blurbs and how accurate they are more than I am the cover art. So seeing a dog or a cat on the cover isn't necessarily going to draw me towards a book. But much like the proliferation of uh, badly photoshopped tattoos, there are a lot more pets on covers, it's true. Especially badly photoshopped ones that don't actually look like they're sitting on that naked man's shoulder. Ever. Ever. Are there any books that you know of that um, that you've liked that have used pets, or is that not even something that you've paid attention to? A motivating factor in my reading of a book. Um, I know that dogs are really important in the Kristen Higgins books, but I've stopped reading her, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then all the dogs in the world aren't going to drag me back. Um, so it's just not something I, I read a lot about, you know. It, again, it, it needs to be integral to the story. Like uh, Joan Wolf writes a lot of books about um, heroines and their horses because Joan Wolf loves horses. I think she raises dressage horses or something like that. So, <clears throat> you know, horses in her books have a real vital role in, in the characters' activities. It's a friends-to-lovers story, and the... <laughs> the heroine agrees to uh, a fake engagement in order to help her best friend, the hero, save his horses. <laughs> and uh, at one point she is having second thoughts and he says something to her like, think of the horses. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and in, an, in another book, the heroine actually uh, raises horses, and, and this is a historical, and um, she she raises, breeds hunters, which is unusual for women, but her horses are so um, magnificent, her hunters are so magnificent that it, it becomes almost like a social cachet to have one of her horses. Lady Weston, I remember that, Lady Weston, I'll buy you a Lady Weston hunter if you agree to do this for me. So those are the ones that I remember, you know, when they're integral into the story and not just there to provide the heroine companionship or some convenient matchmaking plot device where the leash tangles around their legs and they fall down onto a bench together in the park. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Unless it's 101 Dalmatians. I yes. think that's kind of silly. <laughs> or Lady and the Tramp, the most the most intelligent dogs you've ever seen. <laughs> but, but, you know, like I said, I think uh, I'm the outlier there because I think most people really love to see animals in their books. I wonder if that's going to be the next bigger, the, the next slight trend in small town contemporary romance, small town contemporary romance with lots of pets. You need to have children, pets. very cute children, kind of like Pollyanna who will go and sing in her 4th of July flag dress and uh, a few pets primarily yep. dogs. Yep. And old interfering women. 
Yes, pre- preferably come some that are um, uh, nosy and gossip outposts, like on Twitter or Facebook, or like everyone knows that this person knows all the business. And usually they work in like the post office or something. So, you know, they see when you get your brown paper covered magazines of naughtiness. And then they tell Yeah, everybody. I think those are the element. And then f- two or three Adirondack chairs. The, uh, the Adirondack chairs have to have a dog on them or sitting on them. We could probably design the most powerful contemporary romance cover with a couple of Adirondack chairs, some trees, a couple of mountains, and like a really cute dog sitting in the chair. We could we could fill the inside with nothing but but words in random order, but it would totally totally sell based on that cover because it, it has to have the Adirondack chair porn. That's that's required. So, what are you reading right now that's that's making you happy, or are you not reading something that's making you joyful? Two, I guess. I think, uh, I guess they're not self-published. I read one self-published book that I thought was real interesting and one book that was published by Alora's Cave that was pretty compelling. Um, the first book was Escorted by Claire Kent, and that is the pen name for, I think, Amy Nichols. I don't know why she did this, but the heroine in Escorted is a romance author, and her pen name is Claire, Claire Kent. I think it's kind of foolish that... Um, the author changed her pen name to match the author's or the character's pen name, but whatever. That would that would make me c- confused. But it's a gigolo story, and um, generally speaking, I don't like books that have characters as the writers and uh, um, prostitutes. I have a hard time seeing where the how the happy uh, ever after can come from that. But uh, particularly if the working person continues to work afterwards. Uh, I know that there are other people who have different uh, viewpoints on it, but that's mine. Uh, but this really worked for me on all levels. The heroine is a virgin. She had, um, she's 26 years old. She had an intense crush on her best friend through high school and into college. And uh, he never returned those unrequited feelings. And now she just wants to you know, dispose of her virginity. She has some money, and so she hires an escort. And um, they, the two of them eventually fall in love. But what I liked about the story was um, how sex was used within the story really as an advancement of their character issues. But um, the author really does a very good job of selling you on the happy ever after the characters um she the the woman when she realizes she's in love with him can't do can't pay him for his services anymore and so she asks him if they can just be friends because they've developed a pretty close relationship and there's a period of time in the book where they are just friends and there's no physical relationship and i think that that transition from the you know uh, sexual acts in exchange for money to the friendship to a romantic relationship again was really wise in showing us and convincing the reader of the um, believability of their relationship. So that was really well done. So then the other book I read was Reaper's Property by Joanna Wilde. And um, it's a motorcycle club book. And it's super sexist. Uh, the motorcycle club world is very misogynistic. And they refer to women as their property. 
Uh, there are no women in the motorcycle club. There's certain hierarchy of women. There's the old ladies who are either the longtime partner or wife of the MC member. There are the term house mouse, a woman that they take into their home but isn't quite their old lady. And then there are women who are just hangers on who avail, who the club members can avail themselves of. And like, like groupies. Groupies. Yeah. Exactly. That's a good, uh, but in this book they call them sweet butts. Oh God. But you know, it is interesting because i the world building in this book is really well done. I mean, um, the, the author apparently is a journalist and she interviewed a lot of what these call are they're called one percenters and you really get a when you're reading it you're really into that world and it's as I was explaining to um, another friend via email it's I said you know I could never live in this world but I don't mind visiting it um, through fiction yeah because you <laughs> know it's not yours you're not stuck there Right. So it was, it's pretty compelling. It's really, um, is it told in the first person? It is, but it's told in the first person from both the heroine Marie and the hero horse point of view. Horse! <laughs> and, horse um, is. and is he hung like one? That's exactly the reason for his name. It, the, um, because <laughs> motorcycle club members, they have road names of and, so they are referred to within the club by their road name. And uh, everyone has a different story behind how they got their road name. And how he reveals what his name means to the heroine is kind of humorous. There are definite moments of levity throughout the book, which I think has to happen. Otherwise, it would be far too dark and morose. But there's a pretty good suspense line. Um I, a lot of stuff happens in the book, and I think some of it could have been excised, but I think it was done to kind of show how Marie is becoming more comfortable within the world. Marie plays the reader in that she's skeptical and offended at first, mm-hmm. and then her attraction to Horace allows her to explore the world, and then ultimately when she falls in love with him, she realizes that... Um, there's power for her within the structure uh, as long as she works within the structure. So um, I thought that was, it was really well done. I, I, I wrote a little review on Goodreads and I said, you know, there are a lot of warnings here. You know, if, if you are an, against intensely misogynistic books, I would stay away. <laughs> you know, you have to know going in that this is a book that might be offensive. It's very non-PC. It tells about a, a, a culture of the world that you might not be familiar with and probably one that exists and one that in real life has some intense problems. But in the safety of a book, it was interesting to read. One thing I like about exploring particular communities that, that would scare the shit out of me otherwise is that, and, it, and this is the reason why the idea that reading romance is going to give all of us unrealistic expectations, that whole accusation makes me insane because I'm fully aware that I'm reading fiction. It is not as if I could pretend that this is real. And I know that there are readers who want to absorb into the world where I know with some of the Kristen Ashley books, the readers have said, oh, I, I was in the store and I was pretending I was shopping for this character and I knew exactly what he would want. 
that that person I believe is still aware that they were reading fiction. They are aware that they're not really in that world. But if the world building is so good and so strong that you can imagine what going to the grocery store with them would, would be like, that's really powerful writing. And I'm fully aware that I'm reading fiction when I engage with a community like that. I am sort of fascinated by the the dark contemporary sort of Sons of Anarchy style romances where all of the alpha male and often inexperienced heroine tropes are being overlaid on top of this incredibly misogynistic, violent, and secretive society that people have seen. I mean, you, you've, if you've been on the road, you've on a highway, you've probably seen a group of guys on a bike. They're all over New Jersey, especially around uh, September 11th when they do a huge ride into uh, Ground Zero. That's something I've seen that I know nothing about. I am sort of fascinated by these books. And at the same time, like you said, there are issues where I'm like, I have to take a break now. I have to put this down because I am reading a book you've already read. I, I started two books and I'm so pissed at myself because now I'm enjoying them both and I have to figure out which one I run to read more of. I started on Friday Crystal Cove by Lisa Kleypas, which I have a, a paper ARC a, a paper ARC copy. My mother-in-law was shocked that I was reading a paper book. Like she kept remarking, I can't believe you're reading something in paper. I haven't seen you read a paper book in so long. What are you reading? How can you – you brought paper with you? I mean like this was a really big deal. Not for me, but for her. I saw your review on Goodreads of Crystal Cove that um, – that it's missing the part where they fall in love. And that is so true. It has such paranormal insta-love. Like, within a chapter, boom, this is love. Because it's in the sky, apparently. Come on. Ugh. I'm so frustrated with that absence of the development. It's like paranormal insta-love. It was meant to be, and now they have to undo it. The if I'm If I'm correct, this is the last book in her Friday Harbor series, unless they're suddenly become more. I think I saw somewhere that this is the last one. And the heroine is uh, has been in the other books. Her name is Justine and she runs the inn. She grew up with uh, a single parent, her mom, who moved everywhere and never really gave her a home or stability or a sense of security. And so now Justine has runs an inn and it's pretty successful, but she has created a home for herself and a temporary home for anyone who comes to the inn. And she wants to fall in love. She wants to have a relationship and she can't. She hasn't been able to. She's also a hereditary witch, which is where the paranormal insta-love part comes in. And her mother wanted her to follow in her into their local um, coven. And Justine said no. When a particular a client comes to the to the inn, a guy named Jason Black, who is very mysterious and very dark and very uh, controlling. He has a very specific schedule that at this time, the following things will happen. And at this time, this this will be brought to my room and it will be this color and it will be this temperature. I mean, he's very exacting and very particular. When he comes to the inn, they are immediately drawn to each other. And Justine begins to figure out why she hasn't been able to find a permanent relationship with anyone. But like you said, the part where they actually fall in love is like you know, skipped over. It, it, like it's missing. It's just missing. I, it's just not there. So I'm curious as to what will happen. But because the part that I like best isn't there, I'm not as enthused about picking it up. 
the other book that I started reading that I'm surprised that I'm enjoying, and I don't, I don't mean that in an, in an asshole insulting way. I'm surprised that I'm enjoying this book because it's paranormal adventure um, series that's not clearly romance. And I usually don't like books like that because I don't usually enjoy urban fantasy series that are a little bit light on the romance and are clearly not going to be all resolved in one story. Like I know that this is going to go on for several books and yet I'm still really enjoying it. I am reading Sealed with a Curse by Ceci Robinson. And if it's Ceci, I apologize, Miss Robinson. I mispronounced your name. This is a weird girls novel. That's the whole series. And the, the book opens up with Celia and her sisters being brought into vampire court because they are accused of killing a vampire in self-defense. And if you kill a vampire in this world, you couldn't, you, you, the vampires have the right to kill you. She and her sisters are all sort of supernatural outsiders. They each have a supernatural talent, a paranormal ability that is theirs and is uniquely theirs, but they're not part of any established group. They're not part of the wares. They're not part of the vampires. They don't have a group except themselves. So when they're brought into the vampire court accused of killing a vampire, they have to defend themselves, except they're not actually sure what happened when the vampire that they killed came into their home. Their sister had gone out on a date with this guy and he went insane and tried to kill her. But they're not really sure what happened except that he was attacking the sister. So they all got together and they kicked his ass and killed him because that's how they roll. What's interesting is I'm... I'm surprised how much I'm enjoying this because it's very dark. There's a lot of violence. It's... It's a lot of thing after thing after thing happening. It's nonstop events and actions and complications. And, you know, she can't even take a ride in a taxi five miles from a bar to her house without having to get out of the taxi and find dead people. Oh, no. You know, there's always something happening. And I tend to find that very exhausting, especially when the world building is really complex that I want to learn more about it before more bad things happen within it. But I'm really enjoying this book and especially enjoying the relationship between the sisters because they give each other a really hard time and they tease each other and they act like real siblings. But they also they also take care of each other in ways that are particularly unique to their talents. The one thing I'm sort of dreading is that there is there might be, I can't figure this out, a triangle um, between Celia and two guys, the head of the vampires and the head of the werewolf. Doesn't that sound familiar? I'm hoping that the triangle is not so obvious because there's a huge draw between Celia and the Eric, the head of the werewolves, but if it turns into a triangle, I probably won't continue the series. That said, I'm like I'm really enjoying this book much more than I expect than I expected, and I'm attributing that to the writing and the characters because they're they're really well done. And I'm like, can you see? Can you hear how surprised I am that I'm enjoying this book? I'm really quite shocked. Have you read that one? I I don't even think I've ever heard of it. <laughs> It is coming. It came out uh, from Signet on the end on December thirty first. I always feel so bad for authors who have release dates on like December thirty first or New Year's Day or something like that because it's really hard to. I think it would be really hard to promote a book at that time. It's hard to explain. It's got a lot of violence. A lot of violent things happen, but because of the relationship between the sisters and the style of the writing, it's a little bit lighter. Like I'm not getting grossed out or having nightmares or being squicked out by anything, even though really gross things happen. It's pretty well-balanced with some lighter comedy and some genuine affection. Like not everyone is miserable and mopey in this world, which I always tend to get annoyed by in paranormal romances. When did you read Crystal Cove? Did you read it a while ago? 
Um, well, let me look at Goodreads. Um, it says here December 22nd. Then that's when I would have read it. Read it. I am, I am struggling with picking it back up again because of the exact problem that you diagnosed. Ironic about that book is that the prose is romantic. Oh, it's but gorgeous. She, it's so but, beautiful. But she misses writing about the romance. So she writes about how the two, you know, the, the, the sacrifices the two have to make to be together, um, what it means to have a soul, what it means to be in love. Um, but she never tells us how it is that these two, um, other than maybe destiny, puts uh, make why they're a couple. So like I wrote in my Goodreads review, it, it's missing that vital romantic ingredient, but it seems like one of her most romantic writings yet. It's just a really strange book. Um, I wish, honestly, she had spent less time maybe developing the sexual part of their relationship and actually focused on um, love because it wasn't the, it wasn't their physical attraction. Right. It, they're, they're attracted to each other instantly and they're, they acknowledge that very openly, but there's very little focus so far uh, in what I've read on the emotional development between the characters. They are tools being operated by larger forces if the idea of destiny and fate and the witchcraft and the curses and the spells and everything that's going on are making them tools of that their intentions if the if the paranormal elements are the ones controlling the story and they are just sort of pawns in the larger story of the of the world and not themselves then that's not very satisfying for me i'm also curious to see what the final book cover would will look like because there's two different book covers on Goodreads and on Amazon, there's a nighttime and a daytime cover, and I'm very curious which one it'll be. It's not a favorite cover of mine. I don't know. I wish she would go back to writing straight contemporaries. I think that uh, her exploration into this, um, the paranormal, uh, detracts from what I feel like her real strength is, and that's writing about relationships. But maybe she's tired of it. Maybe. I don't know. R regardless, I still look at the at the writing and i'm just i mean she is so talented this is not news to anybody who's read lisa Kleypas, but even without the the romantic development of her characters i still want to keep reading because the writing is so beautiful i mean i, I wrote in the in the margin of my book there's sunset porn and there's uh hotel porn and there's some food porn there's just not an emotional development i mean there's there's scenes where she describes a sunset and it's and it's it's stunning her her writing is just so powerful like here's an example i actually took a picture of this because i was going to tweet it and then i thought that would make me an asshole because the book's not out yet at a loss for what to do, she went to one of the windows and looked outside. The vesti vestigial, vest I can't even see this. The vestigial light was melon-colored at the horizon, darkening to a black plum meridian overhead. The fissure of a crescent moon gleamed white and clear like a claw mark in the sky. A night made for magic. Dude, she's so good. I like you. I wish she would go back to writing a straight contemporary because I miss those. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest for a future issue, or you'd like to tell us about a plot device, dog or cat or 
romance with a kid in it that made you absolutely insane with joy or with virulent hatred, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dbsapodcast and tell us what you think. You could also leave us a message on our Google Voice number, which is one two zero one three seven one dbsa Don't forget to give your name and where you're calling from so we can try to work your message into a future podcast. And if you're listening to the music and you're thinking, that sounds like Pete Bog, you are right. This is the Pete Bog Fairies. This track is called Nope. And it was provided by Sassy Outwater from their 2007 album, What Men Deserve to Lose. You can find more information about them on the website, where I've provided links to iTunes and to their website if you want to buy more of their music, which I know many of you have. And that's awesome. I hope if you like the podcast, you subscribe and tell your friends and talk about us, because I think we're still the only podcast that talks about romance novels, at least the ones that I can find on iTunes. And like I said, if you've got ideas, please share. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and no matter how cold it is, because holy monkeys is it cold here this week, Jane and I wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>